and the partridge lifted slightly prematurely but way out from us uh, but no need to worry he was just commanding it and he just <laughs> I, we, 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 like from a bird at that pitch you don't see anything you hear the roar in this particular instance which I've seen him do many times he went straight through the covey and took the lead bird out Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falcon Retold podcast, brought to you in part by Marshall Radio Telemetry, the makers of the most carefully engineered and reliable tracking systems available. For more information on their awesome products, like their GPS system, head to marshallradio.com. And we're also partially brought to you by North Gen Raptors. And they want you to know that whatever your hunting style is, they have your falconry bird needs covered. So if you're interested in putting down a deposit or finding out more information about their diverse genetic lines that they offer, just send them an email at info at northgenfalcons.com. And we're also brought to you by the Falconry Fund, which is an organization dedicated to support and protect the various arts and practices of falconry and the cultural and environmental assets that make it possible. And right now they have a sweepstakes going on that they want to make you aware of. It's the Red Grouse sweepstakes, and if you win, it will allow you to take a step back in time to experience classic medieval falconry in the north of England. And for whoever wins, they're going to have an incredible time seeing a very wide range of falconry in a pretty short amount of time. So Simon and I discussed this more in the podcast, but for more information, you can go to falconryfund.org slash redgrouse-sweepstakes. So I was happy that the audio quality turned out to be all right for this episode. Normally, we like to stay away from doing the remote podcast for the obvious reasons of the technical and internet bandwidth issues that a lot of people face, but Simon was nice enough to give me a little over an hour of his time, and we felt that it was important to also get the message out a little bit more about the Falconry Fund Red Grouse Sweepstakes. So... I think without further ado, I think I'm just going to turn things over to this conversation with Simon and hope you all get something out of it and enjoy it. So here we go. All right. I think we are rolling officially. So Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join me this morning. And uh, it was good finally getting a chance to kind of chat and uh, meet you over uh, chat with and meet you over Facebook yesterday, but uh, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully the the audio and everything turns out well with this and uh, everybody will get something something out of it. But um, how are you? I mean, are things uh, things still good with the, the manning process with your birds? Yeah. Hi, John. First of all, I'd like to say uh, thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. A uh, real privilege. Um, I don't know whether you've had anybody outside the uh, the United States before, but uh, no, it's a real honor to be included. But uh, now things are good over here. We are, as you know, in the middle of manning two new falcons. Uh, good day today. Yeah, things are progressing nicely. Um, no real concerns with either of them now. One of them, as I mentioned to you, spent quite a considerable time in a hat chamber, a little bit longer than uh, I would like. But uh, no, he's, uh, he's going in the direction I want him to now. So yeah, onwards and upwards. Good, good. Well, I mean, you're most welcome. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm always happy to try and uh, experiment with new things. Normally, we, we, you know, like I was telling you yesterday, we normally like to stick to 
in-person type deals. Um, you know, it's just, it's a little bit more interpersonal and, uh, you know, I, I don't have to deal with as much of the audio issues and stuff after the fact with editing and all that good stuff. But like I said, I'm, it's a, it's a pleasure having you on and, uh, you know, like I said, you're most welcome. And yeah, we've, uh, we've had a, a few people from the international community, but they were kind of already in the U S um, you know, mm -hmm. they weren't, uh, <laughs> they, they weren't uh, sitting all the way across the pond, <laughs> so to speak, you know, whenever we were doing yeah, yeah. this. So, yeah, but, uh, but yeah, no, that's, it's awesome that, uh, that you've got two new birds going and um, tell me a little bit more about, you know, how you go about, you know, your product, like what, what goes into your uh, selection of, of birds, uh, what kind of a prey base do you have where you live? Things like, things like that, just to kind of give me a little bit more and the listeners, a little bit more background about kind of where you're located and, and, um, you know, the falconry in your area. Okay. Um, I'm located central in the UK, the Midlands, as it's referred to, uh, central in the country. I hunt predominantly now, uh, low ground quarry, uh, partridges and pheasants. Um, I'll go into my history a little bit later sure. where, where you'll see I've done all the grouse and lots of other things. But now I'm at a stage where I concentrate purely on lowland game hawking, partridge and pheasants. I'm quite specific um, with the type of falcons I like to use. All parent reared. I don't have imprints. Again, I've, been, I've, I've flown all the types of imprints, but I always prefer my, nat my natural choice is parent reared. I do go along with this uh, modern technique, which is being done now where uh, instead of wild hacking or tame hacking, um, the birds spend a period in a very, very large hack pen or chamber or flight pen. You can refer it to as you, as you wish, uh, but a very large area with a number of other falcons, 40 other falcons. And normally it's about a three week period. Uh, one of them this year through various factors one he was a very early bird and then issues with uh, bird flu over here where birds couldn't be exported he meant he, he spent over six weeks in there but um he, he'll train he's, he's doing fine but I, I do like them in there I, I prefer them in there rather than coming straight out of a uh, a breeding chamber at eight weeks i like them to have another three weeks three or four weeks maturity a little bit of interaction with other siblings and other birds they learn to maneuver they learn how to basically fly. They don't come out of their fit by any means, um, but they they know the basics on flying, which is uh, a great advantage with uh, with the following training. I do match my falcon size-wise to the quarry I hunt, um, which is where the specialist falcon, the book that obviously I recently published, that came uh, to fruition through my ideas on on my choice of falcon and why I do it. I fly one particular type of falcon at partridge and then another one um, at pheasants, which by matching the falcons suitably to the quarry, I think you get best out of both, best out the quarry and best out the falcon. Uh, currently, um, I'm flying, this season I'll be flying actually four hybrids, um, three at partridge and one at pheasants. I normally, pheasants, I normally fly pure jeers. Uh, but this year I was gifted uh, quite a large gear peregrine male, which has always been my second choice for pheasants after a pure gear. Uh, for partridge, I like small gear hybrids. Uh, my favourites being gear barberries. I've flown them for many, many years. 
um, the flying ability, etc. Uh, they can cope with the the weather conditions we get here in the UK far better than a, a, a TSL. Um, I'm a, a huge fan of jeers. I love jeers, but a real passion for them. So anything with a bit of jeering is always of interest to me. I've tried a new one this year. This is the one that's been in the hat chamber a bit longer, and that's a jeer across Black Shaheen, which when I go into my history, I can tell you a little bit more about um, the birds have flown and uh, why I came to where I am. Um, I'm fortunate that I can fly every day of the season, weather permitting. So, yeah, keeps keeps me busy. Keeps me busy. Sounds like it. Sounds like you've uh, you've been a pretty busy man over the past uh, couple of years, especially. I mean, between uh, between taking on the project of of writing a book and you know manning all these different birds and and uh, you know hunting almost every day. It sounds like uh, I mean you kind of live in the uh, the falconer's dream there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I can say I've been very fortunate to do that throughout my life. Um, from uh, my main career, from early 20s, I secured a position as a professional falconer, but a falconer in the true sense, the traditional sense, I was employed solely to train uh, falcons and hawks for my employer for hunting and nothing else, train the dogs to go with it, manage a small sporting estate as well for falconry um and yeah i did that for 18 seasons which was living the dream and then since then um i've, I've moved on with career um but i was fortunate that i could retire six years ago nearly now uh which now enables me to do what i'm doing and that's hawking every day of the season which yeah very blessed very blessed to say the least well that's that's awesome um yeah i guess uh you know, that's, that's an opportunity that most people, I think in our, in our sport and our, our, you know, cultural heritage would, you know, uh, <laughs> would, would sacrifice limbs for yeah. in a lot, in a lot of instances, mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. but yeah, no, I, I think this would be a good time to go ahead and segue to, um, you know, your background then. I mean, you already kind of, uh, you know, talked about, you know, having, um, the opportunity to do this somewhat as a career for mm -hmm. a decent chunk of your life. Well, I mean, let's, let's go ahead and just start like we, like we do at almost every point in this podcast sure. and, and get into your background. How'd you get into your, and how'd you develop the, the love for falconry? Right. Well, it goes back over 50 years now. Uh, my particip participation in falconry. Um, I originated from a town called Nottingham, um, which is an hour from where I'm located now. Um, my father was a, a coal miner, uh, but had a very, very deep passion for the countryside, shooting in particular, uh, and all things nature, which he sort of instilled in me right from the word go. And I developed a, a, the same sort of interest in nature. I used to accompany him shooting and everything when I was very young. Developed a real interest in birds in particular, all sorts, and used to acquire various nestlings of anything from magpies to crows to jays that I would hand rear. And then um, in 1969, there was an iconic British film came out called Kez, which was, again, about a, a young lad from a coal mining town in Yorkshire who uh, got himself a kestrel. And I was taken to see that by my mother. I can remember vividly to this day going to the cinema to see it. And it had a massive impact on me. I'd, I'd never at that stage heard of falconry. So I started to investigate and look into it. And back in those days, trying to find active falconers was very, very difficult. Very few and far between. It was almost secretive in those days. 
but I was a very determined young man. And I managed to source a Kestrel, which I started with um, in 1970. Uh, and went about acquiring books. Uh, the first one was Woodford's A Manual of Falconry. Um, the second one, which I had for the following Christmas, was Maverick Adato's Falcon in the Field, which that had quite a profound effect on me. And one particular part in that that book was a plate of four gear heads, a picture of four gear heads. Uh, that, that is where my gear passion started, because in those days, particularly in the UK, you've never heard, you never saw gear falcons. So that started me on the road to this obsession with gear falcons. But my basic falconry career from then onwards for the first couple of years was basically on my own. My father, he he helped me. Um, I, my, both parents encouraged me to follow my dreams and do what I like. So I started with kestrels. I had a buzzard. Uh, and then by chance, I came across a guy who lived not too far away who flew goshawks. So being the, the type of lad I was, I pestered this guy, knocking on his door day and night. Um, and he he agreed to uh, take, well, take me under his wing. But the agreement was that I manned his goshawks for him. And I think at the time he must have had the best man goshawks that were going because I live with these birds. And being being then a, a young lad with these huge goshawks uh, it was, was great. But the, the deal won them sufficiently. I would be taken hunting which I did. And I was, the guy didn't have a dog. So I was the replacement I used to beat for him. And anyway, I, I saw goshawks hunting. And, and again, my passion went to another level. I was clearly a hunter by heart and needed to do it with, with hawks. So back in those days, the only thing that was readily available was sparrowhawks, which um, we could acquire. Um, I did eventually get into goshawks as well, which I, I flew all the way through my teens um and met up through a small hawking club that was going at the time called the east midlands hawking club um i joined that and met a guy there who is now my hawking partner and we've hawked together since we were teenagers and still do to this day um very very good friend and um, we we flew goshawks all the way through our teens my chosen career or choice of career was to be i mean my mother actually has a recording i was interviewed on a local radio station because i appeared on a children's tv program with a hawk and on the back of that i was interviewed on the local radio station when i was about 12 and they asked me what i wanted to do for a career and my first answer was well i want to be a falconer a professional falconer um but knowing how rare those positions were uh, my second choice was to be a gamekeeper which was countryside related and would enable me to, to be out there doing what I loved. So I did actually find a position as a gamekeeper, but that didn't come to fruition through various reasons. So I went into other lines of work temporarily just to make a bit of money. And then in the early 80s, a position came along um, as Falconer for who is now the late John Fatal, who was the director of the BFC, the British Falconers Club. He, he was treasurer at the time I worked for him, but then he went on to be director as well. And it was the job of a of a lifetime to go and train hawks every day, to be involved with hawks every day just for hunting, to train dogs, pointers, spaniels, all the rest of it. Um, 
and it was marvellous. Uh, we had two months grouse hawking every summer. We'd venture north to Scotland. Uh, we'd rent. Uh, initially, it was a 30,000 acre grouse moor where we'd spend from early August through till early October, say a good two months grouse hawking, which was a real eye-opener. I mean, up until that time, I'd dabbled with a few falcons, etc., but I was very well, very well orientated with, with short wings. Long wings, waiting on flights with long wings was a new concept. Uh, but I knew enough to get by, and three months after starting the job, I found myself travelling north with a huge team of falcons. Uh, the first season, I had nine falcons in the team to fly which was, uh, I had my work cut out, obviously. Now, flying that amount of birds, we used to have, we had an A team and a B team. The A team would go out in the morning and the B team in the afternoon. Um, but this is where I sort of cut my teeth on uh, on game hawking. Uh, fortunately, the first year, I didn't have any new falcons to train. They were all made or semi-made hawks. Um, and I caught my first grouse with a particular falcon called Jade, who was a three-quarter peregrine quarter black Shaheen. Uh, it wasn't a spectacular flight, but it was my very first grouse, and I have a picture to this day, and there's actually a picture in the, the book that we've written. Um, and it went from there, and over the following 18 years, I built up a very good relationship with John Fairclough, and after a few years, he trusted me enough to be guided by me and, and my ambitions and my thoughts on falconry. And it was at that time where I think the seeds of the specialist falcon were born because we were flying all these falcons, far too many falcons to start with. And to catch red grouse with a female peregrine is not that difficult. To catch them on a very regular basis with a tiercel is a different ball game. So it was then I started to look at trying to find something that big tiercels of flying at one pound nine, one pound ten ounce, few and far between, very few and far between. So I started looking at various hybrids, and um, this eventually led me to where I am now with the Geobarbaris, a uh, perfect mid range size falcon, which has to perform well to match the quarry it's being flown at. And this is where we went with the career. Um, reducing the number of falcons we were flying but getting more for performance in the early days it was about catching grouse and we caught grouse we caught a lot of grouse um if, uh, jade in particular i've just mentioned i have my record books which would show that i've often caught two brace in an afternoon with that one falcon and we'd have sometimes three four five falcons on the hill and we were catching grouse i think in the 18 in the 18 seasons, I've caught over a 1,000 red grouse. But when I look back to the early days, then the quality was nothing on the, the scale of what we're doing now. Back in the day, it was order of the day was we have to catch grouse. There's a huge investment gone in. We have to catch them. Um, don't get me wrong. They, they were nice flights for the day. Um, but something inside of me was saying, no, we can we can do better. We, if we get away from the numbers and get onto the quality, the sport is going to improve. And that's the way we ended up going. We reduced the, 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 the falcons down to three or four. We would take a goshawk with us for morning hunting. Up in Scotland, there was such an abundance of rabbits. Uh, so we would rabbit hawk in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I was out uh, game hawking with the long wings. And that for two months, I mean, it's uh, everybody's dream. Everybody's dream to do it. Uh, on return from Scotland, 
we wouldn't fly all the falcons. We would pick one or two and we'd fly those through the season at pheasants, partridge, duck or whatever. Uh, John Fairclough would do an awful lot of shooting. So it was basically down to me. I was hawking for myself and being paid to do it for most of the season, which was <laughs> a bigger bonus. Um, <laughs> I mean, fantastic. I mean, it was a job of a lifetime. But as with a lot of these jobs of a lifetime, uh, the salary doesn't really match it. And uh, the salary wasn't the best. So um, I had to find a way of subsidising it. Well, unbeknownst to me, or I hadn't noticed, I was also developing a very good ability to train dogs of various types. We're working with the hawks and the falcons and, and for gun dogs. And what people always used to mention to me how good my dogs were. Uh, which I just, well, I train them to do what I want them to do in the way I want them to do it. And it was one of John Fairclough's friends who used to do a little bit of shooting with us. Uh, he knew the generosity of my employer and uh, he'd got a young lab Labrador and he said, look, I'm too busy to train this dog. How about I pay you to do it? Which obviously, yes, <laughs> a little bit extra money on the side. I've got a young family at the time. Yeah, okay. So we did that. We took this dog on and he paid me a sum of money for doing it. I was out working on a, a local shoot another day and there was a guy there with a very, very unruly Springer Spaniel. And he questioned me at lunchtime, how on earth do you keep those five Spaniels under control all at the same time without a lead? Can you show me how to do it? So he says, if I come and see you at the end of the season, will you teach me and I'll pay you to do it? So Again, I could then see this uh, other way of making money. And John Fairclough was fully aware of what I was doing. He was a self-made man. And, uh, yeah, he encouraged me to, to to build the business as well on the side, which didn't affect what I was doing for him, but allowed me to uh, to make some extra money. So I, I started training dogs and teaching people. And I built up a very successful uh, gun dog training business that was known as Hawcroft Gun Dogs which we ended up having phenomenal success. Um, it got to the point where after 18 years of being with John Fairclough, obviously you have to look at the future. You have to look at the direction you're going. And although it was the job of a lifetime, I made the hard decision that it's time to go, time to leave, time to move on, because I could see the way the gun dog business was going. And this could put me in a very, very good financial position if I do it right and commit to it. Um, so I made the heartbreaking decision to walk away from my dream job, uh, leaving behind birds that I'd trained, dogs that I'd bred for generations and had to walk away from it. Uh, again, I left on very good terms with John. Um he understood where I was going and what I needed to do. And, and that was it. And it was a very, very hard thing to do. But it worked out. I committed myself for a number of years to the dogs and we were hugely successful. Uh, we went on to build a phenomenal gun dog training business. Um, we won. We made up 13 field trial champions, Spaniels, predominantly Cocker Spaniels, uh, a few Springers. We won the... British Championships, Cocker Championships on a number of occasions. Uh, the highlight being 2008, where it was at Sandringham, which is one of the estates owned by the royal family. And I was presented with prizes by Her Majesty the Queen, uh, which was, yeah, a, a huge honour, huge highlight of the career. Um, but 
I always needed to get back seriously to falconry. And we, myself and my wife, Julie, we worked very, very hard at the business. We moved property to where we are now and established a luxury boarding kennel for people when they go on holiday, which Julie now runs with her team of girls. That enabled me to retire from the gun dogs five and a half years ago. Uh, I say we've been hugely successful. We'd, we'd sent many dogs out to the USA, many, many dogs. Um, majority of those will be Cocker Spaniels, but I had a, and I still have a very successful line of Cockers, which are the Tim's Gary line, which are 100% pure Cockers. And they were in much demand, not just in the States, but all over the world. But as I say, that put us in a, a great position to start this boarding kennel, which again is hugely successful. But that enabled me to retire uh, and get back to my true passion of falconry. But the difference now is it's for me. It's not for anybody else. It's the way I want to do it. And I can do it as much as I like. And I've changed the way I do things. I was under, as a, as a professional, yes, I was under pressure. We had to, if we were picking new falcons up, which would come to us in June, mid-June they had to be going and hunting by the 12th of August beginning of the grouse season so you had to work to a time scale which is not always good with with a lot of falcons as we all know so but now I can do it in my own way and I've, I've learned so much from the days as a professional and, and with the grouse hawking etc on my training methods and I've honed it now into a method that works very very well and although I don't grouse hawk now which I'll go into shortly um the method I use for training would work perfectly for, for, for grouse hawking as, as well as lowland. And let's say now I train everything on lowland. Um, our terrain over here is massively different to, to what you guys. I mean, I, I envy what I see over there, these huge expanses of wide open spaces with little distraction. Very rare in the UK. If you are the grouse moors, yes, certainly that's available, but it's not always easily accessible um so i train on the the lowland in uh, the midlands area which is quite unique uh, we have an abundance of check lots and lots of stuff that distract the birds uh, but we train in it and if you approach it right and you, you you use the right method and the right training program you can get through it and i'll fly my team of falcons anywhere with any distraction but all they're wedded to is the game that we hunt and I think now the problem we used to have was that, as I say, everything was trained quite quickly and then would spend two months being entered on the grouse moor, uh, two months hunting up there, come back super fit, experienced hunting birds, and then we'd, we'd try and fly these birds on the low ground, which is thick with crows, rooks, pigeons, everything you can think of. And you can imagine the problems that we had with some of the birds, or majority of the birds, to be honest that trying to uh, take the transition from no distraction on the moor to an abundance of distraction down here, it took some getting through with some falcons. Some never did actually get out of the habit of checking. Whereas now, the method I use, I will train and, and educate the birds and wed them on the low ground and never have a problem again with, with check, whether they were flown on grouse or whatever. The reason I don't fly grouse now uh, it's not that I don't want to do. I've, I've had some marvellous times and marvellous experiences. Uh, but my everyday hawking is on the low ground. And sadly, 
we don't have an abundance of natural wild game on our lowlands anymore. So most falconers, uh, whether they are long wing, short wing or whatever, uh, have to look at subsidizing the, 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 the stock and actually releasing game. And I devised a method of successfully releasing particularly grey partridge, or as you refer to them, huns, uh, successfully for falconry, which both provide sport on a daily basis and good quality sport, uh, but also helps to sustain and improve the, uh, the, the natural wild stock. We have ground which eight years ago had virtually none or very few partridge on there but are now holding good covers or good numbers of wild birds if the weather's good for them at, at hatching time so it, it does work hand in hand and if anybody believes or thinks that release game is inferior if it's managed properly it's not i mean i can show anybody while uh, release game that is as wild and as spooky as any naturally produced bird and it's all about management um because obviously we all want to fly the best quality of quarry available and that down that is down to good management um just to give you an idea this year i'll i've increased the release program we'll be releasing around about 700 partridge this year over a vast area uh we'll have probably 13 14 release sites uh where we release birds from and, and this is from the midlands where i am through to Lincolnshire in the east of the country, which, to be fair, is probably the best place for getting high pitches on lowland because it's very flat, it's very open, big skies, suits the gears and the gear hybrids. Although where I am here, I am blessed with very, very open terrain so I can go for the big pitches that I like to see. Big pitches are great, but it's always determined by your ground. And if a lot of guys over here only have 50 60 acre fields which you can't be flying above 500 foot pitches because you'd be disappointing the falcons too much so this is where i find myself now in this position where uh, obviously releasing this amount of birds and pheasants we release a, a certain head of pheasants as well that's almost a full-time job in itself so to actually go to scotland for a, at least a month i wouldn't want to do red grouse hawking for anything less than four or five weeks at the time to get the best out of anything. So uh, if I was to do that, that would have a severe impact then on the game release programme, which starts later on this month. Uh, so it wouldn't be feasible for me to be away for a month, six weeks. That would have a huge impact on the rest of the season. I'm fortunate, as I say, done a lot of grouse hawking, but now my, my passion is the lowland. And I don't think you could get much better quality of sport even on a more than what I do now with the methods I use and how disciplined I am on what I want out of the Falcons and the dogs. Wow. That's a, that's a lot <laughs> of, uh, that's a lot of history. That's, you know, it's impressive. I, uh, I can think of a, of a ton of things that, you know, piqued my curiosity with all of the things that you just kind of, you know, covered over your, your history. But in particular, you know, I, I kind of want to, get a little bit better idea of, you know, the kind of the area, like I'm admittedly pretty much a, a geographical idiot in a lot of ways. You know, I'm a, you know, I, it's, it, it's hard for me to remember where things are kind of in proximity to each other, but you know, someone in your position 
you know, with where you have lived the majority of your life. And you said, you know, kind of going back and forth, you know, between Scotland and and kind of where you're at. I mean, how how long did it take you to kind of get to these different areas and get into these different uh, types of of hawking that you that you really enjoyed? OK, um, right. From where we're located in the middle, like my journey to grouse camp, if you like, uh, would take me two days to get there uh, because in the early days, um, Again, I was taking a huge amount of falcons, which were all on cadgers on the back seat and, on the, and, and the back of a Range Rover. Uh, we had a huge twin axle horse box, which was loaded to the gunnels with all the rest of the equipment. And the estate we were renting at the time was actually out on one of the Outer Hebride Islands, uh, the Isle of Lewis which is quite remote, um, where we were situated was an hour and a half down a single track road away from any shops or a, 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 any facilities or whatever. So we basically had to take everything with us for two months. So hence with this huge horse box and it was like a traveling circus. Well, it would take me two days to get there. Um, distance wise, first day I would probably drive maybe five, about 550 miles on the first day, having to stop regular intervals. Because bear in mind, we had a team of dogs as well, which was usually in the early days, uh, six-pointing dogs, mainly uh, pointers, but a few setters, uh, a few spaniels. So obviously lots of stopping to get there. Uh, I'd stop at a hotel overnight on the first night. I'd leave there at four o'clock in the morning, another 100-mile drive to the to the west coast of Scotland onto the Isle of Skye, drive to the top of the Isle of Skye and then catch another ferry, which in the early days would take two and a half hours to drive over onto the uh, Isle of Harris. And the Isle of Harris and Lewis are connected. So I would then drive another hour up up uh, Lewis to where we were stopping. We would rent a croft, a local croft, uh, where we would house the birds in a makeshift muse at night and then we would weather them at the hunting lodge on the estate. And we were there for about seven or eight years on that on that that estate every year. So it, it would you know two days to get there, but obviously when you're there for two months, um, yeah, you soon get over it. And especially when you know what you're going to be doing for the next two months, the journey is always exciting. So we would we would stop on there for say anything up to two months. We would often then come onto the uh, the mainland and then go visiting other falconers who the same uh we're renting grouse moors uh, i'm not one for name dropping so uh but we used to go with all the all the well-knowns in the 80s and 90s and we would be at one estate for a couple of days and then we'd up sticks and we'd move to somebody else so it was a bit of a tour around uh like a continual field meet every other day uh we do that uh and then we drive back to the middle once we were in the midlands when we were back home we'd normally have four or five days off to get settled back in and I would spend a bit of time with the family. And, uh, but then it was uh, all steam ahead then like with the partridge and lowland hawking, which again could be anywhere. It could be two or three hours down South onto the downs or whatever, or invitations there out to uh, uh, Norfolk and, and the Eastern areas and even into Yorkshire and occasionally to, to Yorkshire for some grouse hawking. So it was continually traveling. I mean, from the Midlands, most venues were, easily accessible you could travel there in a couple of hours two and a half hours uh most times we would spend 
a night or two stopping over somewhere. Um, so yeah, we we did a fair amount of travelling. It was only the Scottish one that was um, that was quite a distance to do. Now I have Hawking within ten minutes from home uh, out to Lincolnshire where my pal is, and that's an hour and a half, which is 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 nothing to speak of. I mean, I can do that there and back in a day, but more often than not, I stay over and we have a couple of days. Well, we we normally hawk together out there three days a week, four days a week usually. Awesome. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. An hour and a half, whenever you've done, you know, <laughs> the, the two day and two month, you know, treks. Uh, yeah. It, it becomes kind of like nothing. I, I understand. I'm so I've been doing so much traveling this past year in particular. It's almost to the point now where like a seven or eight hour drive is like almost nothing now, you know, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, so that, that's really fascinating to hear, you know, the, this, this huge kind of uh, expansive of area that you've, that you've covered. But I mean, Obviously, across the world, uh, all the hawking spots are starting to, you know, dry up, you know, either mm-hmm. from, you know, construction, um, you know, commercialization, et cetera, so on and so forth. I, you know, uh, kind of our understanding to a certain degree of how, you know, land management works mm-hmm. over in, in the UK and other parts of Europe. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of elaborate on that just a little bit for me, because. You know, there, there's this kind of conception that most everything is, um, you know, privatized or, uh, you know, hard to access now for the most part, um, you know, hmm. kind of in that area. I mean, what what what's the actual, uh, you know, landscape look like in your area as far okay. as how, how hard it is to get to these areas? OK, right. Um, just some basic information on how it works. So we don't have any land that is free hunting at all. Uh, all the land is owned. Uh, by landowners, um, by councils or whatever. You cannot just go and hawk, hunt. This is shooting, hunting, fishing or anything in the UK without permission. Okay. Or actually agreement with the landowner buying the sporting rights or whatever. You need permission. The only exception is Scotland where you can fish uh, certain locks. You can fish locks for brown trout anywhere. Um on moorland and heathland there is open access for the public but it's not hunting the hunting rights are all owned by landers grouse moors by the estate owners and it's all managed at their expense the lowland is all arable farming which again is either is owned uh, either by small farmers tenant or or uh, you've got tenant farmers on there or it's larger landowners now acquiring permission sporting rights is very difficult we are a very, very small island. And as you've already touched on, the the countryside is being encroached in all directions. One of my prime um, grey partridge grounds that I've been hawking for 30 years is having a very controversial high-speed railway cutting through one quarter of it mm. uh, with no consideration for the wildlife. or whatever. It's horrific. It, my heart bleeds. Uh, I, I go hawking still there, but I see what they're doing to the, the, the land and it's devastating. But anyway, um, so, yes, it's very, very difficult to get the ground. I'm in a very fortunate position, again, through the position I did and the people I met through that position. And also through my years as a gun dog trainer where I traveled the country, field trialing and got very well known 
and was often called upon by landowners for dogs, etc. Uh, so I made a, a very good contact base that when I needed ground for hawking, these guys were quite willing to, instead of me going hunting with the dogs on there, to turn it into hawking ground if it was suitable. Um, I'm very, very fortunate that I've got probably more ground than most to hunt on. I do know lads that really struggle. Um, and falconry is getting more and more popular. Uh, there's more people after hunting permission. So it is, yes, you have to look after what you have. Uh, and it's looking after the landowners. Um, some ground we pay for, we pay leases uh, uh, on the ground. Others, the landowners are more than happy to have me on there. And I work very closely with the landowners and very much on producing wild game. A lot of the landowners I work with, they have a passion for the grey partridge. They like to see wild game. And I've proved time and time again that falconry and conservation works hand in hand. Um, it's not a numbers game. It's not like shooting. And I have found that it's far easier to acquire land for hawking on uh, than it would be for shooting on. Uh, there's a fasc fascination with birds, birds of prey. Um, and uh, that fascination often gets you a, an invite. And once I found that I'm hunting one piece of ground, I will always take the landowners out anytime they want to come and see it. And you can become a little bit of a sideshow in some ways, whereas they want their friends to see this guy with these hawks on their ground. But that in turn, a day out, taking them out to let them see what we do can often lead to, well, come onto my ground. I'm, I'm the neighbour here. Like, come and do the same on here. And and it and it, it does open up. If you approach it right with the landowners, I look after my landowners as much as I can. I can talk to them. Obviously, with my history, I can talk to them about agriculture and the problems they have. I'm on the same wavelength. I, I respect the ground and all the rest of it, which they appreciate. And that helps you. But obviously get your foot in the door in, in other areas as well. So it's not easy in the UK and, it, and it's getting harder and it will get harder. Uh, but with the right approach, then, uh, yeah, falconry is, uh, is well capable over here. Yeah. It's, it's getting harder and harder pretty much everywhere in the world right now, unfortunately. And I think it's only going to continue to keep getting harder. And, you know, I, I, I make jokes with, with a lot of my falconer friends that if you don't like, uh, you know, kestrels and sharp shin hawks and things like that over here, you know, in, in the U S you better, better start liking them. Cause that's, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's pretty yeah, much yeah. You know, at some point mm -hmm. it's, you know, it might be all we have, uh, we have game for anymore. But, that, uh, that's right. Yeah. 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 But, um, but yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like you've had a very, um, enriching, <laughs> you know, a, a amount of experiences in, in your, uh, in your life, not just, uh, you know, Falkyrie, but with the dog aspect and, and all that stuff as well. But I guess now would be a good time to go ahead and, and kind of uh, get into, you know, what led you to make the decision to put your experiences together and, you know, come up with uh, with a book and, and decide to to share the this knowledge with the uh, with the rest of the community. Um, yeah. Right. Um, as the listeners have probably realized, I, I, I have a deep rooted passion for the falconry and and hunting um the other how can i put it down not a downfall but the other problem i give myself is i set a very very high bar i do everything to the maximum i look for perfection in everything i do and 
in the performance of my falcons and the dogs i'm looking for the best all the time trying to raise the bar uh, and i also look to promote that in the falconry world to improve and maintain high quality falconry um, we have no regulation in the uk which is very disappointing in a lot of ways because it's a bit of a free-for-all on ownership of birds of prey um, so i am a, a huge advocate of promoting high quality husbandry and falconry uh, many people come out and see me fly and see me work with my team and often amazed at the, the the level that i insist i get from the team just one example i'm very disciplined on pitches i, I like pitches that suit my ground which are fortunately very high pitches i will not flush for any of my made birds under 700 feet and this leads quite a lot of falcons over here quite bewildered um i insist that's the minimum uh, and this is the sort of level that i train to and it, it creates this fantastic performance from all my falcons now my door is always open to falconers to come out and see what i do experience what i'm doing and to learn and I, i'm of whatever hawks falcons or whatever with my experience over the years i'm always willing to help anybody with be it a, Har a beginner with a harris hawk or goshawks or whatever so my door's always open now people have trained alongside me they've come along i'll help them train falcons or whatever and it's clear that i was developing a method that works for the for uk falconry and it's been often mentioned that i should put pen to paper uh i always refused i haven't got time for doing that and all this and, and that's and it, writing a book i've never written more than three or four pages at a time since i left school so actually putting something down it's no 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 well not something i was keen on doing but anyway with pressure from certain people and family and uh the pressure w was mounting over the last few years because again the number of people that have been out and used my method and had success over here uh improved their own falconry was saying you must write something and i could see there was a bit of a niche in the market coming as well because vast majority of falconry related books nowadays are historic ones we're all interested in the history of falconry but it's all historic there's very few current ones with uh explaining and and showing current methods with everything that we use nowadays the the modern telemetry the gps uh, drones all the training aids whether it's for waiting on or or even like for the burwings for pursuit flying all these training aids that are available there's there's nothing really current and detailing it so uh, it was starting to a few seeds were starting to to be planted on the idea of doing it but i'm still a little bit reluctant to do it um earlier on last year 2020 prior to the pandemic uh, i was getting added pressure from my hawking partner ian um one or two other people richard jones the the hawk vet uh, over here who's a very very good falconer he was insisting on i was doing it. andrew ellis the artist who's a very very good friend and falconer um we had a very late night in february last year where all he did was hound me all evening to to start writing this book um so okay i said right well if i do it i want andrew ellis to be involved with artwork i want richard jones doing an in-depth uh, health and disease chapter and they agreed so i 
the one good thing for me that came out of the pandemic and lockdown was that was a good excuse to sit down and try and write something. So every day I put a few hours aside in the morning to to start writing. And I started in April last year. And what I thought would be the hard bit, uh, writing, it was actually the easy part. By end of August, I'd actually put it all more or less pen to paper and, and completed. What I did do, I fired draft copies of it out initially to, to Ian, my, my hawking partner. Um, he thinks the same as I do. Um, he would give me his honest opinion quite readily. If it was negative, he'd more than be happy to, <laughs> to fire negativities <laughs> at me. Um, but no, uh, I sent it to him and then to various other falconers, both very experienced falconers, falconers that had also written books in the past, falconers who were fairly new to the sport. I just wanted them to read it and, and give me their feedback on how it read to falconers or somebody who'd got an interest in it and did it come across, did it explain itself well enough? And out of the seven or eight people that I sent it to, the feedback was unbelievable. Um, so we'd completed by the end of August and that turned out to be the easy part. I was then in a new territory altogether. How, what do we do from here? Well, fortunately, another good friend of mine, David Horobin, who does a lot for the British archives of falconry over here, um, proofreads a lot of falconry literature for a lot of books for the IAF, for their magazine, and has been doing it for years. Andy is a falconer. Uh, I asked David if he wanted to be on board, and he jumped at the chance to be involved with something that was current and actually about train about falconry. So David came on board, and we threw ideas backwards and forth, and we tidied it up. Uh, with the grammar and all the editorial skills that he's got, which obviously we needed to, but he he polished it. He he corrected my grammar on almost every page, I would think. But anyway, he did his <laughs> his magic. Um, we completed that by the end of January. So the next task was to find a printer and somebody to do the layout and design. I struggled to find anybody that could match my ideas in the UK for the layout and design. And it was through good friend Sheldon Nicole that uh, he mentioned Dan Milner, who I knew obviously does the NAFA journals. Um, I made contact with Dan, said, look, this is what I've written. Here's a few chapters. Have a read. Do you want to be on board? Uh, Dan jumped at the chance. Um, I didn't give him any ideas of what I wanted. I said, well, look, I'm going to fire you a chapter over with some images, put it together, give me some ideas. How would you approach this? And he couldn't have matched my ideas any better. It came back perfect. All the personal touches and everything. So, and Stan was, uh, was on board. Um, and then we needed to find a printer. And I'd recently had a book at Christmas bought to me by my wife, uh, the George Lodge Diaries. Very, very nice book. Very nicely produced by a, a UK printer down in Cornwall so obviously having their book in my hands I approached them um, set up a fantastic relationship and I'd got what I call just the the the, the A-team for producing the book um, which we all work very well together my wife is a is an avid photographer uh, she's always taking pictures and does amazing work even just with an iPhone and with my collection of photos from years gone by and Dan's skill at uh, 
photoshopping and, and tidying them up and doing all the rest, we produced a book with fantastic pictures. Uh, and I think a book needs to have pictures. It needs to have uh, illustri well, illustrate, but images that people can relate to. They can, they can, they can read it and they can see it. Um, and I know from when I was a child, in my old falconry books, which are on my bookcase now, the first thing I did was look at the pictures. And I looked at these pictures time and time again in the book. And yet I always know through all my old falconry, falconry books where the best pictures are because you can see the, <laughs> the corners of the pages thumbed. But it was important to put a, a lot of pictures and a lot of detailed pictures in there because a picture can speak a thousand words or more. So it was important to get good quality, informative uh, pictures in there. And, yeah, I'm I, I just overwhelmed by how it turned out and how well it's been received. We uh, we produced a collector's uh, version, which I know a lot of falconers are avid book collectors and they like the specials. And I did the special leather-bound edition of 150 copies, which were actually almost sold out before they were even printed, which just was astounding. Uh, and then since we had the books printed and it only came out available at the beginning of June, it's sold beyond my wildest dreams. And the feedback I've had has been tremendous. And you guys in the States have just how many has been in touch and bought the book has just been phenomenal. And I can't thank you enough. It's uh, it's great. It's it's You'll read it. It's a lot different in a lot of ways to, to what you guys do. But I've uh, on the back of the book, I've had conversations with many guys from the States on game releasing, which you may well be needing to look at in, in the future for sustainable hawking. So... It, it's some of the methods will be adaptable over there, but it gives you an idea of what we do over here and the way I do it and the disciplines I put into my sport, which raises the bar. And if, if that book just helps a few falcons improve what they do, then I'll be more than satisfied. Well, that's outstanding. I'm, you know, as, as another, you know, as an artist and, you know, someone else who, you know, obviously puts out things they do, um, you know, for people to, you know, get whatever they're going to get out of it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, I, I can certainly relate to it. It's always nice, you know, whenever you people positive, positively receive and, and get a lot out of, uh, something that you've kind of put a lot of work mm -hmm. and a lot of soul into. So, I mean, congratulations on that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you that it's been received so well, but yeah, I mean, the, the it's, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, kind of the, uh, yeah, it's like the whole game release and and you know the the game farm type type of thing. That's uh that's another kind of one of those <laughs> you know potentially polarizing conversations that you can have within our within our community. I I definitely need to um you know admittedly I have uh, kind of been here there and everywhere over like I said the past several months. So I also need to uh, pick up your book and and check it out as well. And uh, you know I I haven't had just a whole heck of a lot of time to. Uh, you know, get into, you know, the, the different hobbies that I have, unfortunately, with as, as much as I've, you know, kind of been around, I've, I've done my best, but, you know, I've also recently tried to narrow down my personal hobbies <laughs> as, as well, because I was just hemorrhaging money and, you know, on a lot of different things. And, uh, and I, I, I do still collect, you know, falconry books, is as well just kind of started getting into that not too long ago so i definitely need to pick up your book as well and, and check it out and look forward to doing so but um yeah this would be a another good chance to discuss 
you know, kind of, uh, I mean, you mentioned having, you know, some relationships with, you know, other uh, Falconers and some of our organizations over here in, in the U S I, I would really like to kind of go into now kind of how you developed um, or kind of collaborated with the, uh, with the Falconry fund on this current sweepstakes that that's being held and um, you know, kind of how that came to fruition also. Yeah. Well, how it came about was I've, I've been a, a member of NAFA for, uh, a long time. Uh, I'm always interested and I watch uh, what happens with falconry in the States. Always been a keen follower. Never ventured out there yet myself, but I'm, it's on the cards, that's for sure. Um, but no, I've been involved with that. And then up through lockdown, um, the virtual muse tours uh, came about. So although it was very early hours for me, I mean, not, I think the earliest one for, for with the time difference would be midnight for us over here <laughs> um but yep yeah, so i was prepared to do it we're in lockdown we've not got a lot else going off so um i i joined in i i i joined the meetings the the tours and i think they probably got fed up with a lot of my questions at the time i was wanting to know as much as i could about how you guys do it and how you keep your your, your hawks and your falcons and how it goes there and i, I built up good rapport with quite a number of guys in and and after being on the virtual tours i was having conversations and zoom chats with various guys from all over the states on one or two things and then uh sheldon asked me if i'd be prepared to do one here so let those guys see how we do it so i agreed it was at a more civil time for us i think it was about six o'clock uh in the afternoon and I, I did a small tour of my facilities here and I touched again on the game release. I showed an area where I hold game before it goes out for releasing and that, again, stimulated interest. On the back of that, um, I was then asked to do a presentation for NAFA for the uh, virtual meet during the, the weekend. Obviously, like your, your, your main field meeting was cancelled, but they, they had the virtual one. So I was asked to do a presentation on how I game release over here. So I put that together. I think that started, I think for me, that was two o'clock in the morning. That one's again, another late night, but we did it. Uh, and I feel it was received very, very well. Um, I think it was gone four o'clock in the morning by the time I left the meeting because there was questions. And, and again, I was making good contact. I met Mark who, um, uh, mentioned on his tour that uh, about the Falcon refund. So I had a look and yeah, fantastic idea. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd made these associates over there as the book sales came along. Um, I had an inquiry from Carter who uh, is on the Falcon refund, who, who obviously works on, works alongside it. And he was asking me various questions about the book and, well, again, we we started chatting about a few things. Um, he then put an idea to me. Um, he said, we may be looking at trying to do a fundraiser. He said, what would it cost for somebody to come and spectate falconry in the UK? And for me, there is no cost. I would never, ex I would never look to charge any falconer. And I don't think there are many falconers in the UK that would do, would do that you would never pay to spectate. We would be more than happy to let people see what we do, whether they're from the USA, from the UK or whatever. It's all about educating other falconers and experiencing and meeting other falconers. And the pleasure 
that we would get of, of showing other falconers from another country what we do and how we work over here would be would be great it would never be dreamt to, to charge anybody for that so i said to carter look i can arrange with my contacts i can arrange you a fantastic week to 10 days hawking um all it will cost you is your flights accommodation and obviously hire of a vehicle the rest is uh is free of charge and, and i'll get you the best i can so between us we started formulating a plan of time scale etc we were originally looking towards october uh, but we've had a very very poor spring this year very late cold spell uh, which have delayed and had a severe impact on the red grouse breeding this year because obviously red grouse are naturally produced uh, there's no grouse reared and released they are naturally produced so a lot of the estates are putting all their sporting activities back a month so uh we decided to go to november um i know all you guys over there probably think of red grouse hawking and scotland is the the place to go and it is it has some fantastic grouse hawking uh and a lot of history up there but it brings its issues weather for a start um to see good good grouse hawking you want to you don't want to be there in august you want to be there a couple of months in when the grouse are obviously at the prime condition. But the downside is then that much further north, the weather can have a major impact. Uh, grouse numbers on the hawking moors in Scotland are not what they used to be. Whereas I've got contacts for grouse hawking in Yorkshire and I've got fellow falconers who do hawk on some phenomenal grouse moors. Now, these are some of the most prestigious driven grouse moors in the country. Uh, absolutely immaculately managed estates abundance of grouse uh and yes you can have poor weather there like anywhere but my line of thought was that if we're only in yorkshire and the weather is inclement and not suitable for one type of hawking i can easily move whoever's there to another venue to do something else um it's two hours from where i live uh, so the plan was to try and show as much falconry. I said, I said to Carter, I said, do you want allegedly 10 days or a jam-packed all-action 10 days where you're going to need a holiday at the end of it to recover? He said, that's <laughs> that's that's the one we want, he said. So I set about, with, and, it, and it will we it will commence with red grouse hawking, um, and then it will move down into the Midlands and across to Lincolnshire where it will be a mixture of lowland game hawking with falcons, uh, eagles i've got uh, some eagle guys lined up for e eagles on brown hairs uh and then finishing with uh some excellent uh goshawks on pheasants and partridge uh for the very last day uh we have got options that if a day is not suitable for hawking we can arrange well i, I can arrange a visit to the british archives of falconry and various other things so we're, we're trying to cover all angles i've offered um time with me on dog training on hunting dog training i uh, i will be there i won't be there for all of the days but because i shall be right into the middle of my my hunting but i'll be guiding everybody and the, and the guys that are going to be there uh and the the hawks and the falcons it's going to be first class they're going to have a fantastic time no it sounds amazing and it sounds like a an amazing opportunity for you know, anyone that is lucky enough to, to win that particular sweepstakes. And I believe, and I, I, 
looking on the um, you know website right now, which you can um, find on falconryfund.org is is where the information for this is. But I believe it's only a, like a fifty dollar contribution or something that mm. gets you entered. Correct. That, that's yeah. correct. I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> it's got to be worth going. I mean, for for a small donation for that, for what you could possibly win, and the main factor is it's raising money for an excellent cause. Of course, an of excellent course. cause. That that's first and foremost. But the what the opportunity that is there for a couple of guys to uh, to come and witness what what we do here, just totally different type of falconry in a lot of ways. Um, it'll open your eyes to what we deal with over here but what is obviously capable within restricted terrain and countryside and all the rest of it but then to see a, again a wide variety i mean it may just be long wingers that are coming over and have not seen the quality of pheasant hawking we do with goshawks over here so or the eagles that might be a new uh, experience for somebody there, there, there'll be something for everybody and there'll be new experiences for everybody and it's and and for for a, a smaller donation like that it's got to be worth going for Oh, no question. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you're, you're going to have a hard time. I mean, just from my logic and, and reasoning standpoint, you're going to have a hard time, you know, finding a, a trip that you can go on where you're getting such a, a wide variety, you know, of, of, of hawking it just covered all at the same time. I, I don't know of very many other, you know, <laughs> I don't know of very many <laughs> other opportunities you can have to, to that's, it's kind of mind blowing when you think about mm -hmm. it, but just to clarify, I mean, how much, how much area, I mean, uh, like how much, um, you know, as far as just the different places that, that people will get to go on this trip, uh, how many, uh, how, what's the, the, the variety of area that's going to be covered or, or what's the. Right. Okay. Um, the grouse hawking, well, I, I believe you they're flying into Manchester and the grouse hawking, which is, they'll be moving to the first venue. That's about an hour and a half from the airport. Um, and the beauty about this more, it's very, very accessible. Um, so yes, there's obviously an element of walking, etc. It's it's the, the actual acreage of the moor, to be honest, I couldn't tell. It's probably ten or ten or twelve thousand acre, but it's it's a prime grouse moor, and you don't have to cover a lot of ground to find game. There are there are some superb dogs as well, I must say that as well. The guys who are there uh have a superb team of dogs, uh pointers and setters. Um, so yeah, you can see how we hunt the dogs over here on grouse. Um, so that's the, that's for three days, and it's all uh, in the Yorkshire region. Then from there, there may be a two-hour drive down to me. The plan is at the moment on the Friday, move down to me in the Midlands. We'll, we could have a day, an afternoon then on Lowland Hawking here, and then everybody will then, we will drive out to Lincolnshire, which again is about an hour and a half's drive uh, to a, some superb accommodation there. Um, which they'll be staying there for the following uh, three nights. And it'll be a mixture. Then we'll be judging the weather conditions and what is the best sport. So it could be eagles, it could be long wings at, at pheasants and partridge, all within half an hour, an hour's drive of where they're staying. And then on the Monday, after the final day's hunting in Lincolnshire, we'll travel back to my area again, which is an hour and a half, two hours Um for the Monday night, ready for Goshawk in early start the following morning, which will be the last morning. And then we will be planning a, uh, a last night dinner get together for everybody um, to, to have a nice reminisce of what they've experienced. Yeah, that's, 
I, I that that would probably that'll probably end up going in well well into the wee hours of the morning would be, would be my guess. But uh, no, I mean it's it sounds like an incredible offer, and um, yeah, I mean everybody that's listening, would definitely we definitely encourage you to look into it. I mean, plus you get a thousand dollars in spending money and a signed copy of your book, and yes, that's I right. Mean, there's there's a there's a uh, and it's the special edition. It's the limited edition, which is now sold out. Uh, won't be available. There'll be no no more of those printed. Um, I have one of those numbered and signed, ready to hand over to whoever's successful. Uh, and uh, as I say, I'll be here. Any time spent with me, anybody wants to pick away at my knowledge, and I'm more than welcome, more than happy to share anything I can with uh, with anybody. So it'll be a, a, a fantastic ten days. Yeah, I uh, I mean, it's definitely worth looking into and like i said i'm i know um i i'm gonna go ahead and and probably uh you know contribute the the 50 dollars just you know like i said to help out and you know feel like i do my part as well on it and you know like i said if um like it's it's one of those things that i, I don't see an opportunity like this coming up very nope. often mm-hmm. and um you know so like i said please look into it um you head to falconryfund.org and and uh, do a little bit of homework. And if it sounds appealing to you, which I can't imagine that uh, it wouldn't, <laughs> you know, I, exactly. I can't, can't, can't imagine a, a trip like this wouldn't appeal to most yeah. Falconers. But uh, but yeah, all, no. I, will, yeah, all I will say is if anybody wants to see a little taster of what we do, if uh, I've got a Facebook page, visit my Facebook page, send me a friend request. I've got lots of videos on there of Lowland Hawking that I do uh, just to give you a bit of a taster. So by all means, have a look at that. You'll see that I've got lots of other, uh, I think on my NAFA uh, membership page, there, there is a film on there as well, a compilation film. If anybody wanted to see that of a couple of seasons ago, of the whole season. So just to give you an idea of what we do and, and what part of what you'll be experiencing. Fantastic. Well, I think we've covered I mean, a lot of, of good stuff in this uh, in this podcast, but I definitely want to end on a note. Um, you know, I usually ask um, the guests that come on if they could share one of their favorite or their favorite most memorable Hawking story. And uh, I usually like to end on that note. So if you'd be willing to share, um, I mean, I know over all these years, you've got to have, you know, you got to have so many and it's hard just to pick one, but. But if there's one in particular that sticks out in your mind, um, go ahead and share. Right. Okay. It's, uh, as I say, I've got so, so many from over the years, of, particularly on grouse and going back years and all the rest of it. But what I think I will have to mention is a bird that I'm currently flying now. Um, this bird is a geobarbery. Um, he's seven times intermewed. Out of all the falcons I've flown, all the falcons I've seen, I've never had anything like this boy. He's just amazing. He's actually the bird on the front cover of the book. Uh, Holds a very, very special place, but his whole performance, and I'm going to tell you about one of his spectacular flights um, and how this bird can, can, can fly and can operate. But I've never had a bird so consistent so loyal uh so successful all he ever hunts is partridge uh and never ever looks at anything else he's phenomenal sonic we call him uh, there's lots of he has lots of other names but that's his official name um but this boy um 
his average pitch for the season is around about 900 feet. He's a 74% success rate. Uh, one, probably one of his all-time best flights. Um, and this, this just shows on how he can command a situation. We uh, were, were out in Lincolnshire and we were scanning a, a, a field of um, cover crop. Well, it was one that farmers over here now get subsidies to plant. They refer to it as a cover crop or a green fertilizer. And they get subsidies to plant this crop to overwinter and then plow in so it's more natural fertilizer in the spring. Well, this has the advantage for anybody who's hunting because it holds game. And we were scanning this particular area um, for pheasants. Uh, didn't see a pheasant at all. And just as we moved and we hadn't seen it, it was so close, a covey, a large covey of wild grey partridge lifted from virtually at the side of the road, got unsighted by us and flew right out into the middle of this huge expanse. Um, so we, we got a good mark on it. There was four of us there, my, me, my pal and, and, and our wives. And we marked this covey down way, way out into this cover crop. Um, perfect flight for, for Sonic. Uh, because this bird can just hold anything down and let him go in his own time. And he just climbed and climbed and climbed. Uh, but all the time, he has an uncanny ability to to know, <laughs> to mount above where the game is. And he climbed and he was getting up well into the heavens. And the thing I like about this falcon, he will... When I start to walk in, and we were a long, long way out. We were four, five hundred yards probably from this, from the mark. And when we start to walk, he continues to climb. And he, once he was back over us, um, he just commanded the whole area, um, and just without, well, without missing a wing beat. I mean, he just eventually disappeared. Uh, he was so high. We started closing in, and obviously these parties have been moved once. Uh, not purposely, but they'd move once. They they'd, um, obviously would be very edgy. And this bird is not just watching me. He's aware of everything that's going off around us. And these partridge lifted. We, we cast the dogs off knowing we were getting to the area. But when you're looking at a mark from that distance, you can never pinpoint it. You know you're in the area. Um, GPS showed him like out of sight, well over like the four-figure pitch. And the partridge lifted slightly prematurely, but way out from us. Uh, but no need to worry. He was just commanding it. And he just, <laughs> I, we, 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 like from a bird at that pitch, you don't see anything. You hear the roar. And we saw the last 300 feet. Uh, and uh, the thing is with, with him as well, which uh, he, one of his techniques, he will often appear to stoop way, way behind the, the quarry when it's going away. Uh, look, and it some days it looks so far behind, but he just roars through. Uh, and again, in this particular instance, which I've seen him do many times, he went straight through the covey and took the lead bird out, which was obviously the first bird that that, that flushed. Uh, lead bird out of the covey went through, I think it was 12 or 13 in the covey, clean, cleanly bound to his lead bird. And it's just, it's no effort for him to to, to do it, it's just. That's one of many memorable flights. And thankfully, well, uh, the amazing thing about this bird is that 
85% of his flights are like that. They're just epic. And you could describe that every season from a number of flights. But that one in particular, with it being a true wild cover of greys, very difficult mark, long way out, had to command the position, held him down, and even like took them on when they, they flushed early was just phenomenal. He's just a super bird. Wow. He's the the apple of my eye. But I don't let I don't I don't let the wife hear me say that too often. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. if if you're anything like uh, most falconers, I think um, most significant others are used to hearing such banter <laughs> at this point. It's uh, it's hard to uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard to find a, a falconry household that um, you know. It seems like there's at least one bird that's yeah that the uh, that the falconer that's is just right. as enamored that's... with as a significant other. So. That's but, it. Uh, That's it. Well, that was an awesome story, mm -hmm. and thank you again so much for uh, for sharing your your thoughts and experiences uh, with us, and you know, taking the time. I mean, we're um, you know, time flies. We're already about an hour and fifteen minutes here. Oh, and uh, and uh, I, I told yeah, you no, you'd I, have to shoot you'd have to shut me up. So. <laughs> well, I'm, no. I'm I'm getting ready to shut both of us up here. Yeah. But I think I think this was a great conversation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was pretty informative, and I think that that a lot of people will will enjoy it. So thank you again so much. And um, like I said, uh, it for anyone that's interested, I'm also uh, you can also refer back to um, you know the uh, the beginning of the podcast as well. I also will put the information for the sweepstakes um, at the very beginning of of the show as well. So um, I hope more people look into it and. Um, like I said, it's it's going to be a great opportunity for anyone that can that can possibly in, invest, and if nothing else, just they're willing to uh, give to a good cause. So, um, like I said, I think this is going to be a good a good spot to go ahead and call it good. And um, you know, we'll talk just a little bit more after I I end the recording here. But uh, thank you again so much. And um, yeah, I mean, have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk again soon. I hope, John. Thank you very much indeed. Really enjoyed it, and I hope the listeners have. Uh, Got a bit of pleasure from it. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Thank you, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Cheers.